how these drugs fare on different metrics can still be very discriminatory. And I think the simple fact that different metrics have different impacts on different types of drugs sort of underscores how imperfect they all are. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. Well, if the FDA approves AMX35, it will mark a victory for the entire ALS community and provide people living with ALS another treatment option. But it will also spark new questions about how much the treatment will cost, how much will be covered by payers such as Medicare and health insurance companies, and what barriers those payers may put on access. And one important group that helps inform how much insurance companies and payers should pay for a therapy is ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. ICER is an independent nonprofit funded by insurance companies that seeks to place a value on treatments and therapies by comparing how well they work and how much they cost. And ICER has announced that it is going to be conducting a review of AMX35 in the coming months, even as FDA continues to review the application for approval of the drug. And joining me to discuss what all of this means is Dr. Neil Thacker, Chief Mission Officer at the ALS Association. Uh, Dr. Thacker, thanks as always for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. I want to get into how the association is engaging in this process, but first I want to start with the problem that ICER ostensibly is set up to solve. And the issue of figuring out how to place a price on drugs or other types of therapeutic intervention and regulating access to those therapies, that's real. That's right. And as you know, drugs are extremely expensive in the United States. I think they're the highest in the world. Um, and so we really want uh, people to take drugs that are affordable. And uh, of course, we also want drugs that are beneficial to them. And these are both really solid principles that ICER is focusing on. What do we know about the ways that ICER determines the value that a drug provides? Yeah, it, it starts to get a little complicated because they, they start with these good premises and reasonable assumptions, and then things start to go awry and we wind up in a place where we don't necessarily want to be. And so one of the questions for valuing the price of a medication is, is what's the benefit and how much is that benefit worth? And so the, the concept is ICER relies on data, survey data, where they ask people, well, how would you feel if you were in this kind of health situation and you got an improvement versus another health situation and got an improvement? And they tend to ask people who don't have the profound disabilities that we see in ALS. Um, it's just hard to find people like that. And so people without ALS can have a hard time seeing the value, the joy, the, the hope, the engagement that people with ALS have, even people uh, who have advanced cases of ALS. And so their value of life and their value of base of benefit can be biased against people with ALS. In, in fact, when they start valuing life, they can assign a numerical value to some degree of function, death, and, and even conditions that were, are worse than death. And some of the profound um, impacts of ALS end up scoring as worse than death. And that's something we're very concerned about at the association that ICER and thereby, and the people that listen to ICER will just miss the boat entirely and miss the dignity and value of living with ALS. Now, do we know if ICER's review 
is limited to AMX 35? Is there concern that there'll be so-called mission creep and this will become a, a way to evaluate other drugs that are in the clinical pipeline or that are already in the marketplace? It's, it's possible that they will expand their review to other drugs that look like they're in the pipeline and close to approval. Uh, but we haven't received any confirmation as of today. That, that could change pretty quickly. So I mentioned wanting to get into the ALS Association's role in all of this. Um, what is the association doing? I know ICER has reached out to the association um, as part of its process. How is the association engaging? Well, this, this is really our engagement with ICER is part of our effort to transform the experience of ALS as soon as possible. And so we need to make sure people, uh, we can find new treatments and then ensure people can get access to those treatments. And the ICER process has the potential to slow access to new treatments. And if it is too harsh in their, in their evaluation, even scare away people who want to develop drugs in the ALS space, they'll just think, why should I develop a drug that no one can really get access to? So we're, we're paying very careful attention to this. And so let me let me take that apart a little bit. Sure. So, you know, we want people to have access to drugs, and an important part of having access to drugs is that those those new medications are affordable. And so, ICER's efforts to control affordability is really important and valuable. But sometimes those affordability recommendations don't happen in the way they want. Sometimes a payer will introduce rules or procedures that make it harder to get the medication. We've, we've all been through this in, in the healthcare system where we want to get a prescription and it doesn't get filled or we think it's going to get filled, but then it turns out there's something the insurance company needs and then the doctor needs to make a call and then the doctor doesn't make a call. So the pharmacy calls the doctor and then we have to call the pharmacy and then the doctor and then sometimes the insurance company. And we get caught in these bureaucratic traps. and Sometimes it's just everybody's working hard and they miss stuff in our confusing health system. And sometimes there are deliberate rules where you can't try a drug until you go through another drug or until you meet a certain kind of disease threshold, or you're allowed to get one drug according to your insurance company, but you're not allowed to get another drug in the same class. We're not there yet in ALS, but at some point we might be. And so there's all these administrative procedures that are in the way that it make it hard to get a drug. And our health system is confusing and very intimidating. And if you think about the folks who are, have the hardest time advocating for their care, it's people who are poor, people who are overwhelmed with other aspects of their life, people who may have trouble getting to a clinic or getting to a pharmacy to make their case in person, or people have trouble communicating. And so these are a lot of issues that affect some folks with ALS and what may seem like a, just a routine sort of administrative barrier in, in other conditions may be an even worse and bigger challenge in ALS. Once we have a drug that seems to be working, everyone who needs that drug should be able to get it. And that's a fundamental thing that, that we need to fight for. So part of our messaging for ICER and part of our hope for the community is that they communicate with ICER ICER is outlining a series of steps of ways that people can engage with ICER to provide feedback. We're going to share those with the community as they become available. And we ask that people with ALS and their caregivers talk about what their lives are like, 
how important a even a small benefit will be to their life and some of the challenges in accessing medication. This is all important stuff. Um, with ICER, they're, as I said, they're starting with good principles. Let's make drugs affordable and make sure people only take drugs that benefit them. But we run through this bureaucratic process that has multiple layers and multiple actors. And we can wind up in a position that is really just frankly cruel to people with ALS. You talk about the opportunity for folks listening at home, for folks in the ALS community to engage and kind of share their stories and talk about how they value their own lives. Do we know how much weight or, or whether ICER factors in qualitative data about the value of life that may maybe not come into conflict, but that may inform that scale that they're using that seems like a pretty blunt and, and potentially discriminatory scale? So how, what role can qualitative anecdotal evidence of, of how individuals who are living with ALS, how they value six months, a year, um, the, the value that a treatment can provide, what role does that play or what role do you see that potentially playing? Well, well, there's a couple of things working in our favor in this case. And the, and the first is, ironically, because this is such a rare disease, there, there isn't a lot of data to go from, to build from. And there also aren't a lot of treatments out there. It's not like there are good options available for people with ALS. And there's you know, a drug that basically, a new drug that will do basically the same thing as an existing drug. That's not the case. And so that is working in our favor. The other thing that's working in the favor of people with ALS is we have really powerful, effective advocates all throughout our community. And I saw this in our, our meetings with the FDA when people with ALS speak about their experience and what they're looking for in treatments, they do it with with great passion and also depth of knowledge. And it's it's quite powerful. So I do think the ALS community will speak and I do think ICER will hear them. The question is to what extent will their models allow that data to be fit into their decision-making? And that's still unknown. I mean, they have some really, again, fundamental aspects to their model, which are really challenging for ALS. For example, most of their models that they've done in other disease spaces depend on the concept of an average patient. And there, there's no average patient in ALS. And how do you build an economic model and come up with a single price recommendation for a community that's as diverse as ours? That, that's part of what they need to understand. They do need to understand that the, the math doesn't capture everything. And um, I do think our, our community can get that message across. And important to point out in that context that we are at the beginning of the ICER review process, which is expected to last several months. I believe that a report might be expected sometime over the summer. So a lot of time between now and then, uh, certainly not the last conversation we'll be having about this, Dr. Thacker. Hopefully we can uh, recruit you back on the show as this conversation moves forward. Sure. Happy to, Jeremy. In the meantime, I had an opportunity to dive deep into the weeds on ICER, its history, and some of the concerns about its methodology with Sarah Van Gertruden, Executive Director of the Partnership to Improve Patient Care. Let's hear from Sarah now. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time this week and being with us here on Connecting ALS. Thank you for having me. I find this to be a great opportunity to talk through these issues. And um, yeah, this will be this will be a lot of fun. I hope your listeners appreciate it. Yeah, well, we're going to jump right in. And Sarah, you are the expert on all things ICER. So I'll start with the basic one that a lot of folks are probably asking. 
What is ICER? Who funds it? When was it created? Uh, what role does it play in our healthcare system? So ICER has been around since the early 2000s, but really got going around 2000, I guess, in the 2014, 15, 16 is when ICER became sort of more of a household name. At that point, ICER um, had a large focus on conducting studies of new drugs coming to market, doing what, what we call cost-effectiveness analyses. In 2016, it became more of a household name because the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation came out with a proposed demonstration for how to pay for Part B drugs. And that demonstration actually named in the phase two of the demonstration that they would potentially be using studies from ICER, the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, as part of how they would pay for Part B drugs in Medicare. And that's important because if you go back to the Medicare law, Medicare actually bars the use of a metric called the Quality Adjusted Life Year, which is a metric that ICER uses, and I'm sure we'll talk about more in the conduct of its cost-effectiveness analyses. And then in 2017, ICER achieved a contract with the Veterans Administration to um, help them determine what they would or would not cover under a VA formulary. And after that, they ended up with a very, very big piece of funding from a group called Arnold Ventures. It, at that time was the Lara and John Arnold Foundation. And the Lara and John Arnold Foundation um, then with that influx of money, they allowed ICER then to really grow its portfolio in terms of the studies that it was conducting. So, so moving on, so ICER became a household name because of its contract with the VA and then the influx of funds from the Lara and John Arnold Foundation, which later became Arnold Ventures. Now, you know, what we are seeing is that the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review is conducting more studies of potentially, you know, expensive drugs that are coming to market and they're doing so many of them that they're getting a lot of attention from policymakers as well. And they're being used more and more by private insurers as they look to how they're going to cover certain drugs and what kind of utilization management they'll put behind those drugs as well. A lot to unpack there. And I want to just jump right in. So you mentioned qualies. Um, what is a quality adjusted life year? Because I know we're going to be hearing a lot about that over the course of the next several months as ICER digs into its review of AMX 35. So the quality adjusted life year is a metric that's been quite controversial for over 30 years, particularly with the disability community. Basically, the way it works is that think about in the calculation, zero is death, one is optimal, what, what someone would define as optimal health. In between, there is a value given to a life, a year in of life lived in certain states of health, right? So an example that I often use is multiple sclerosis, which is if you look at the quality of a person living with multiple sclerosis, it's a 0.5. So in the calculation, right, a person living with that condition has half of the value of somebody that is living in optimal health. So, so you can see where the metric would fundamentally then devalue treatments for that condition. What's really interesting about ALS, and I think most troubling, is that ALS actually has what, what is called a negative utility. If you look at some of the EQ5Ds and, and uh, other metrics or utilities for that particular condition, it is considered to actually be a, what we call a state worse than death. It's below a zero. It's a negative. So I think ALS is going to be an interesting one. 
So when you look at the quality, right, the, the way that the improvement in health is calculated is by saying, okay, if you're starting at a point five, I'll use that one because it's easy. And the, the drug then brings somebody to say a point seven, then the incremental improvement in quality of life and that is that point two. And that's, that's the math that goes into the calculation of a quality. So if you're not achieving optimal health, right, there's a chance that the value of the product would be considered less. And the other issue that really gets tangled up with the quality adjusted life year is that a person living with a disability who say falls lower on that metric, maybe at a point two, is a person who may be living in a wheelchair and the drug isn't necessarily going to get them out of that wheelchair, right? right? But it could give them the ability to sit up in bed. It could give them the ability to require less caregiving, to live more independently. Say that quality of life improvement is worth, you know, 0.1 or 0.2 or whatever it may be. A person who's living at a 0.8 and who achieves the same incremental improvement in quality of life to get to maybe a 0.9 or a 0.1 or, or a full one, those are considered the same values. But I think for a lot of people, they would say, but wait, the person who is living with a disability probably values that incremental life, quality of life improvement more. Right. 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 And so it's very tough to incorporate into the quality adjusted life year, that kind of thought process where you're not just looking at the, you know, what are you going from a 0.2 to a 0.3 or a 0.4 on this and what part of the scale it's on. Um, so you can see where fundamentally it can be discriminatory because the populations that we most want to help at the lower end of the scale are the ones that also probably are going to look less valuable to treat using this quality metric. What goes into creating that quality of life metric? I mean, who determines what makes a quality of life a 0.2 versus a 0.4 versus a 0.7? So basically, these are population-based surveys. The health utilities are based on population-based surveys of regular people, right? Where they will say, okay, um, how would you define quality of life living in this state? And then and they will describe that state. And there have actually been some very interesting studies. I know one that is often cited in the disability community was a study, and I think it was the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, where in surveying people, people said that they would prefer to be dead than blind, for instance. Now, that doesn't take into consideration what economists and, and researchers would call hedonic adaptation, right? A person who may become disabled adapts to that condition and probably would not define their quality of life quite so poorly once they've lived in that condition for a while, right? Um, sure. But these population-based surveys don't take that into account, right? They're, they're talking to people about what do you think the quality of life is of a person who's living with these conditions? And that then informs the utilities that get pulled into the metric. They're very controversial because the surveys are not necessarily tailored at surveying people with the condition about their quality of life. They're actually surveying people in the broader population. So at people who can see are weighing in whether they would rather be blind or, right? It's not right. limited to somebody who's experienced this condition that a treatment is meant to make better. Right. It's people who have not experienced that condition, or it can be. A lot of the people are. It's, it's not discriminating against finding the population that a treatment is meant to benefit. It's being measured based on 
how healthy people think life would be like if they had. Right. Yeah, okay. no, that's exactly right. And you can imagine, you know, this sort of gets back to why we passed the Americans with Disabilities Act back in 1990, right? The point of that was to provide people with accommodations so that their quality of life living with a disability would be high, right? That they would be able to find accommodations in our community and in their homes and in their work to achieve a higher quality of life. So people who, are, who have accommodations, who have disabilities, often would claim that their quality of life is quite good because they've been accommodated. So are there limits to how a quality of life year assessment can be put into place and how it can be used in terms of pricing or access to treatments? So the way that it goes into pricing, at least as as defined by ICER, right? ICER conducts what's called a cost per quality analysis. So they will take these quality adjusted life years, use that to determine the extent to which a product is improving quality of life, compare it to the cost. They will look at it in the context of certain budget thresholds. So they will define what the appropriate budget threshold is, which is very arbitrary. And then they will say, yes, this is cost effective or no, this is not. So often what you will see in an end result of an ICER study is that they might say, yes, this product is clinically beneficial, but at the same time, they will say it is not cost effective. So when that analysis then is put forward to payers, payers will say, well, the clinical benefit doesn't justify the cost, so we're not going to cover it. Or they'll say, we're going to subject the patients who want or need this drug to prior authorization, step therapy, or other conditions that then make it harder for people to get the drug. So we've seen this a lot, particularly with, with products like cystic fibrosis um, in Canada, they're very reliant on qualities in Canada in terms of how they cover drugs. And so a lot of the new products for cystic fibrosis, which have been really game-changing here in the United States and have meant for patients, right? It used to be that cystic fibrosis patients were not expected to live much past the age of 30. But now we see cystic fibrosis patients on these new products living full, long lives, having families, and in Canada, these patients are not getting access to the drug. We, we, we actually can cite to a story in Canada of a, of a, of a woman with a, with a girl who was a teenager, or I guess at the time that we interviewed her, she was 12. And the only way that they would give her the drug was for her lung function to decrease. So they actually manually in the hospital, the doctors imposed upon her lower lung function to get her to qualify for the drug, which just seems right? Seems absurd. Right. But that was what they had to do in order for her to qualify for the drug, because it wasn't until her lung function was at that lower level that they determined it to be cost-effective to treat her. And, and, and then, and, you know, and then of course you get into like how much it costs for her to be in the hospital for all of that to happen. But um, it did not make a lot of sense. So Sarah, we've been talking about qualies, a controversial and seemingly important part of the IC review, but presumably not the only data point that they're looking at as they're assessing um, 
you know, the therapeutic benefit and the, the cost component, the budgeting component that you were just talking about, what other data points is ICER looking at as they're assessing a new drug? So ICER has also come up with a, a metric that they use alongside the quality. I think they recognize too that it's not a sufficient metric, but they they calculate something called the equal value of life year gained alongside the quality. They did this in order to respond to the assertion that qualities discriminate. So in, in order to try to solve for that, what they did is that they took what I just described earlier as the, the zero to one scale. They basically give everyone a one. So they solve for the component of the quality metric that discriminates in terms of the value of a person's life in terms of a year lived in the life of, right? What they do not account for, though, in terms of the shortcomings of the quality is the life extension piece and the, and the quality improvement piece. So um, to the extent that someone who has a disability or a chronic condition may have a shorter potential lifespan, same thing with a person who is older, right? A person who is older may have fewer life years left, right? The equal value life year gained does not solve for that problem. And the other piece that it doesn't solve for is, as I said, the incremental health improvement to the extent that the data that goes into the quality doesn't necessarily capture life improvement to a person who is living with that condition. So the value that a person places on not needing a caregiver, being able to sit up in bed, being able to go to work, a lot of times those components are not necessarily captured in the incremental health improvement or value proposition. And so the equal value life you're gained has those same problems. So I'd, I would say it's um, it definitely does not fully solve for the quality problem. And I think undervalues, you know, it depends on whether the drug is a cure or not a cure, like how these drugs fare on different metrics can still be very discriminatory. And I think the simple fact that different metrics have different impacts on different types of drugs sort of underscores how imperfect they all are. Okay, Sarah. So it sounds like both qualities and equal value life year gain leave a little bit to desired in terms of being really blunt measures that don't capture a lot of nuance of a life lived. Are there alternatives to these data points that still get to the same question that it sounds like the industry needs an answer to, but maybe with alternative metrics? Or are, are there other ways to answer the question that ICER is trying to ask? Absolutely. So I think the, the first thing that I would say is that one of the basic challenges in any value assessment methodology has been the data that feeds it, right? If it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. Sure. And so, to, so there, there needs to be more investment and groups like the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute are doing this, right? There needs to be more investment in capturing outcomes that matter to patients and people with disabilities, understanding the value of those outcomes for patients and people with disabilities. What do they want to achieve with their care? What value do they place on that? So that's number one. You know, there are other entities too working on methods that better capture that kind of patient level data, really engaging patients and understanding the condition in a very nuanced way, and then using calculations through things like multi-criteria decision analysis that allow for us to answer the value question in a way that better represents 
who's asking the question and what they want answered, yeah. right? So uh, to answer the question for a patient who can say, well, what I want out of my care is to go back to work, right? Well, then, well, let's figure out then what's the most valuable thing for you. And the questions are going to be a little bit different if the question's coming from a payer. It's going to be a little bit different if it's coming from a provider. It's going to be, you know, and I think there has been some investment in looking at alternatives to qualities. I think the challenge that we have found is that most of the investment seems to continue to go into qualities. By and large, they're the most, it's the most used metric. So when you when you hear the term cost effectiveness analysis, yeah. That by and large means a cost per quality analysis. As a community, I think the patient and disability communities would like to see the quality cease to be the assumed basis of a cost effectiveness analysis because there are other ways to do it using better data. And that's where we want to see the investment go. Sarah, I think you touch on an important point there that I, I hadn't even occurred to me, but it's, it is that who is asking the question. And in this case, I guess my question is what triggers an ISA review? Is this every drug that is coming to market now or is subject to an ISA review or does someone have to ask the question and, and kind of get this ball rolling? And if so, who's asking? So that's a very good question. I wish I had the answer to it. Um, adding ICER tries to identify what's coming to the market that's new and innovative and potentially expensive. Mm. And so they decide what they're going to study. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty arbitrary um, in terms of now, I think one of the biggest critiques of ICER's methodology has been that they tend to study these drugs before they're even approved by the FDA. So they'll right. see something coming down the pipe. They'll take the time then to scope it out and conduct these assessments. They're primarily using, you know, the, the data from trials um, that are conducted as part of the FDA approval process. Those trials do not include real world data. And as we all know, right, trials tend to have a very narrow participation from, you know, people who don't have coexisting conditions, right? Who do not necessarily reflect the real world, right? So there's been a lot of critique that ICER should be, if they're going to be doing these studies, they should be doing them later after they have more real world data to better understand the true value that these products pose for people. But yeah, it's, I, I, you know, I think it really is just a, what's coming down the pike and, you know, what can we do here to drive prices down? I think that's the mindset they go into it with. What happens? So ICER completes its review. What happens next? Like, wh where does the information go? What decision making is it driving? How, what's the response generally once ICER has completed a review? So that's evolved over the last few years. You know, early on, I think everyone was highly critical of ICER for obvious reasons because the 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 studies were being conducted so early, and frankly, with very little engagement from patients. Their patient engagement has improved in, in the sense that they bring more patients into the tent. I think there's still, though, is a lot of criticism in the context of the outcomes of the studies, because while they have improved their patient engagement, the information they're getting from patients tends to not be incorporated into the math of the cost effectiveness analysis. It tends to be put in what they call the contextual considerations part of the report. 
Unfortunately, I think payers pay more attention to the cost effectiveness analysis than they do to the contextual considerations. And so there has continued to be a lot of critique of their methods um, and the outcomes because of that. You know, they also at the end of their reports will pull together these policy recommendations and those policy recommendations are really, I think, what payers look at too. And so even in instances where ICER might say, hey, this is cost effective or this is clinically effective, in their policy recommendations, they also have a history of saying, but if everybody were to get it, it would be a budget buster. So we think you still su should subject this product to step therapy or prior authorization or other condition other conditions for coverage. And so and, and just to be clear, Sarah, you're talking about policies. We're not talking about government policies. We're not talking about no. like the way we talk about public policies. These are policies that would be written into my insurance that yes. I get. Yeah. So these are insured this so they they will break down the policy recommendations by audience. Um, yeah. You know, what should patients, providers, payers, and um, I think it's 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 the recommendations for payers that tend to be most controversial because they usually involve some sort of barrier to care. Well, Sarah, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and I know there's a lot more to unpack here uh, and a lot more discussion that we will be having over the next couple of months. Before I let you go, is there anything that we glossed over that I didn't get to that you think is important for our listeners to know as the ALS community starts down the road of an ICER review. You know, the advice that we always give to, to patients that are facing a new study is, you know, despite the fact that it is, ICER is not a government agency and they have sort of given themselves this power, right? And I think for some, some people go into this with the approach that we shouldn't give them the credibility of our engagement. I actually think that you have to be engaged. It is a process that whether we like it or not influences decision makers. And so whatever patients can do to be engaged, to share their stories, to underscore the impact that the condition, in this case, ALS, has on their lives and the lives of their loved ones, that has to be useful. And even if it only makes it into the contextual considerations of the report, it's going to be far better for that to happen than to not happen ultimately. So I would just say my biggest piece of advice is engage, gather as much data as you can. You may or may not find it to be used by ICER, but it's just very important to, to be at the table. And then, you know, because when it's over, you also want to be able to point out, hey, we were there. We said all these things and they didn't necessarily listen if they didn't listen. Right. You want to be able to make sure that you're holding them accountable. We will be sharing opportunities for listeners to stay engaged over the coming weeks and months. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. I want to thank our guests this week, Dr. Neil Thacker and Sarah Vangertruden. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to more information about the ICER review process and the process of getting AMX35 to the community as quickly as possible. If you like this week's episode, share it with a friend and find time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a truly great way for us to connect with more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, production management by Gabriella Montequin, supervised by David Hoffman. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect with you again soon. Music.